You may be seated. About three and a half years ago, I had two major life changes that were going on pretty much at the same time. And they were similar in some ways. What they were was that I had been praying and had already communicated with my elders that I felt God was calling me to lay down the church I had planted 12 years earlier and, uh, and plant again. And that I, that I had asked them, would you give me a year just to raise up a pastor for this church that I'd been pastoring and started you know, from a living room and uh, I'd poured sweat and blood and tears into over years and years. My, the only church home that my kids knew pretty much. And I wanted a year to raise up a new pastor, but also to raise up some financial support and some partners because I was going to go to Texas and I was going to plant this church. And so I was in the midst of doing that when I found out that my daughter was not only engaged, but that they were going to get married. And so here I was with my firstborn daughter who I had raised, <laughs> who I had loved, who I had cared for all of her life, soon I would be walking her down an aisle, and though I'm a, her pastor and dad, I was also going to be the one that was going to give her away that day. And so, as crazy as it sounds, I needed God to give me a little bit of help in both situations to know that the church that I had raised up, uh, I needed to put it in the hands of somebody who would love that church, who would love the Lord, who would take care of it. Now, who wouldn't just get in there and go, well, man, that's a paycheck. I can get a paycheck out of this deal, and it's a good church, and they'll be generous with me, and I can do this for maybe a year, two years, and then I can move on to something better. Boy, I, I just didn't want that for this church that I loved so much. But even worse, even more, here I had my daughter, who I just cherish with all of my heart and soul. And I was supposed to, with confidence, take her hand, place it in the hand of Zach Winters, and say, I give this woman to be this man's wife. I was going to take, in both situations, one far more than the other, but definitely in both situations, something I loved, someone I loved deeply, cared about deeply, and say, I'm going to play a different role in your life now. I'm going to step back from the role that I've had, and I'm just going to play a very different role, not as forward a role. And the reason why I could do that was because of Scott Taylor, the guy who followed me and is today the pastor of the Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois, He's a man who loves the Lord. He's a man who loves God's Word and loves the church. And I knew that, but now I've seen that. I was trusting him to not be a quack. Right? Not only Scott Taylor, but Zach Winters. And I tell both of them this several times a year. I'm so glad for your walk with God. It's made it a very hard situation so much easier because I had confidence in your love for the Lord I knew you would love his bride 
I knew that the church would be okay. I knew that my daughter would be okay. No matter what you faced, I had confidence that because of your love for the Lord, I could entrust this great gift, this great stewardship to you. Friends, when we look at 2 Timothy, you are looking at a man in the Apostle Paul who is asking Timothy, the young protege, I want to trust you with the gift. I want to entrust to you a stewardship, a ministry, one that I've had for many years in your life. I'm soon going to die. And I know it. And Paul knew at this time he was writing his final words. Maybe he had hours to live. Maybe days, maybe weeks, but he knew he wasn't getting out of this one. He knew it because Nero, the emperor, at the time of the writing of this book, was trying to save his own skin because he had set Rome ablaze in 66 AD. He was incompetent. The Senate knew it. Two years later, they would sentence him to death, and rather than dying, he took his own life in 68 AD. But in the meantime, he was trying to save his own skin for what had happened in the fire of Rome, and by doing so, he blamed the Christians. The Christians are the reason Rome burned. It wasn't my incompetence, it was the Christians. So to be associated as a leader of the church is what Paul was, is what Peter had done. They both were in the same prison at different times. They both were executed by Rome. To even be associated with Paul would put your own life at risk. Paul knew this. Timothy knew this. We're going to find out next week another guy. Onesiphorus, he also knew this. I want you to just try to put yourself in the spot of these early Christians knowing that if you speak out your faith, you're taking your life in your own hands. Why not just be quiet? Just be saved and be quiet. I mean, you've got your salvation. God's love will never fail you. God will never disown you. God will never forsake you. Why not just kind of burrow down nice and quiet and not let anybody know about your faith in Jesus of Nazareth? I mean, wouldn't that be a safer route to go? You've got salvation. Why take a bunch of risks? You ever felt like this? That maybe in the years to come, being a Christian will become so unpopular that you will certainly be harassed if you let the world know of your faith in Jesus Christ. If you share that you too have believed in Him as the only hope that you have for salvation. You couldn't earn it with a moral resume. You needed a Savior. See, other world religions give you rules and if you follow the rules, you ascend the ladder of righteousness and then you essentially save yourself. Christianity is not like that. Christianity says you're a sinner who could not save themselves. You needed a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. And if you become a Christian who speaks out, maybe in the days to come, it will be more than harassment. It might even become dangerous to be a Christian in the United States. Now, a year ago, I, maybe two years ago, I just, that's just really probably not in our lifetime. Ask some of the Jewish students 
at MIT or Harvard right now, if they could have imagined a time when their Jewish heritage would have been something they would have been a little bit scared to speak out about. Hide your identity. It's not safe to be a Jew on those campuses or in Western Europe at this time. Friends, the day may well come and we may well live and see a time when you would just as soon not let anybody in the world know that you believe in Jesus Christ. It's easy to trust in God when everything's going smooth. But it's so theoretical. Look back on your own life and tell me when you grew the most in your faith. It was probably when the storm was battering your boat. Charles Swindoll always had this statement that it's easy to be a good captain in the harbor. It's a little harder out on the waves. Well, 2 Timothy is a book for this season. It's a book for us. And, and I know that the Word of God is powerful and it's effective and everybody in this room and those who will hear this message later are coming from different angles into this moment where you're hearing this particular message. For some of you, it has been such a tumultuous season in your life. You are ready for some still waters because you've faced so much adversity. And for others, you've had such a, a, a sweet little run here of things just kind of going your way. And everybody in between needs to hear this. When you walk through this dark, broken world, your strength is insufficient. You won't have the wisdom, money, charm, stay power to make it through apart from Jesus. That's in this life. That's just in this life. You will need Him on the day of salvation, on the day, the great day of the Lord that comes, and you will need Him every moment in between. And so what I want you to do is I want you to lean forward in your mind, and I want you to push out the distractions. I want you to ask God to speak to your soul in a way that you can hear Him, that you will not miss it as God speaks to you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for the book of 2 Timothy. We thank you for the real hard nature of what Timothy is being told by the Apostle Paul. It's not dressed up. It's not otherworldly. It's very mundane and where we can get at it, and that's a good thing. Father, I pray for everybody that's here today that they would hear your voice speaking to them and that it would bring comfort and conviction, and that you would build us up, that our faith in Christ would be our foundation. Lord, I pray that you would empower me to preach. I know the task is beyond me, so I ask for your help. Give your people the help to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul says in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me, his prisoner. Such an interesting thing that Paul in the Mamertine prison, a Roman prison, doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome. No, 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 I'm a prisoner of Jesus. And so Paul says, listen, at this time when it might be easy to just go real quiet about your faith, don't be ashamed that you know Jesus. 
Don't hide that. Don't keep that under wraps, Timothy. I know why you would want to do that. I know why anyone would want to do that in this particular culture at this time. You would want to just essentially take that wedding ring of Christianity, slip it into your pocket so that no one knows that you're affiliated with Him. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? I remember early on in my Christian faith, you know, you've heard my testimony about how I came to faith a couple of months before I graduated from high school. What you don't know, and I haven't spoken much about, is that in the months and weeks that followed that conversion, I had a friend who lived with me in Bedford, Texas. He lived in a very big house at the top of a hill, so to get to his house was to drive uphill. And his house had these columns out in front. It was just super impressive to me. And I said, man, what does your, your dad do? What, is, what, like, what do your folks do? What do? He goes, oh, my dad is an industrial psychologist. I said, oh, you don't say. Like that, that just sounded sophisticated to me. I don't know. I just, you know, and I thought, well, what does an industrial psychologist do? Oh, he does all kinds of fascinating things. You should ask him about it. I was like, oh, that's weird. I don't want to talk to your dad. He said, no, no, you're, my dad's great like this. Ask him. So I said, hey, what does an industrial psychologist do? And so he started to describe the functions of an industrial psychologist. People that set up, you know, the, the Home Depot in a certain order so that you go through. They're the ones that set up the maze at Ikea. You know, you get in there, you can't get out. It doesn't really work for me, but that was an industrial psychologist. Industrial psychologist knew that the McDonald's needs to flow in a certain way to make it more efficient. An industrial psychologist would know that in Las Vegas, you'd never know inside the casinos if it's night or day. You'd never see a clock on the wall. You'd hear the sound of coins going into slots, right? That's an industrial psychologist. I was like, well, does it, does it pay good? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do real well. Work down in Las Colinas. Las Colinas is beautiful down there. And I set off on a mission to become an industrial psychologist. I said, hey, the one thing I want to know is how do you get from point A to point B? I'm at point A. I'm going into college. I want to get to industrial psychology. He said, well, it's, it's relatively simple. You're going to have to take this course, get your undergraduate in psychology. You're going to have to get a master's in psychology, and then we'll talk from there. Okay, so how do I, how do, I do this? And he said, okay... This is what you do. And so he kind of helped me take my initial steps. And so I got a job at something called the Residential Treatment Center of Bedford. The treatment center. So that when I was going through my undergraduate work at the University of North Texas, I needed a job. I had to pay. That's just the way it was for me. I had to work 32 hours a week, four eight-hour shifts while I was going through my undergraduate to pay for my degree. And so I got this job at the treatment center in Bedford. And this job in, what was that, 1989, was paying $13 an hour. It was a lot of money. And it, it was awesome because while I was living in Denton, I was working in Bedford. That's about a 45-minute drive. I could take all of the stuff I learned at school that day, show up at the treatment center working with teenagers, working with some adults, but mostly teenagers, um, and I could teach them what I'd learned. And I could take notes so I could get into my master's thesis early. I was driven by a vision that I was going to become a sophisticated, wealthy, industrial psychologist. I mean, just it was a vision that drove me. There's only one problem. As I was driving back and forth, 
four times a week, 45 minutes each way, I just started listening to a radio station called, it was KCBI, it was all these Christian preachers. And I mean, I had a voracious appetite for the Bible at that point. So I'm listening to Chuck Swindoll, J. Vernon McGee, David Jeremiah, Tony Evans, you name it, I'm listening to these guys. I knew the sound of their voice. Charles Stanley was a big voice at that time for me. And so I'm, I'm listening to these guys. And then I show up with my psychology notes from class to help these young people that were struggling. And I remember thinking, this stuff doesn't work. I mean, it's helpful at one level. It just doesn't work. And so I'm sitting there with kids whose lives are just broken. And here's the only thought I had. You need Jesus. And so I started sharing the gospel with everybody. I mean, I started sharing the gospel with all these kids. And I mean, kids who started getting saved. And it was fine. It was fine until... One Jewish young man got saved and a Jehovah's Witness kid got saved and then they go on weekend pass with their parents. And here's what their parents come back on the next morning and the next Monday morning and they say, my kid is doing so great. I've never seen him so happy. I've never seen him so alive. The only problem is I did not send them there to get Jesus. I sent them there to get healed of the darkness in their soul. I'm thinking, well... So my boss comes to me and says, Robert, we love you, but you have got to stop talking about Jesus. And so it's funny you should say that. Because you need Jesus. I mean, I just was on a, man, you need Jesus. And I just started sharing the gospel to everybody. They said, look, we like you, but you keep doing this, we're going to fire you. And I looked up at God like, what are you doing to me? I need this job. Can't pay for school without it. And so I had a moment where I had to decide, what am I going to do? Save my skin or risk it all for Jesus? I shut up for maybe two and a half, three weeks. I wouldn't say anything. I get a late night call. I'm working on the shift that works till midnight. They call from the other facilities in the acute care facility. And they say, we need your help right now. I go over there. And there's somebody who's having a really, really, really hard time. And I, I sat in this person's room and I, I listened to the brokenness of her life. And as I'm listening to this, I was like, right, I'm going to tell you something, but you can't say anything, okay? You need Jesus. And I shared the gospel with this lady. And little did I know, her roommate was listening Oh my gosh, these two women got saved that night and I have never seen two more bold evangelists in my life. They start telling everybody about Jesus. And then my boss comes back to me and goes, what do you do? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, we told you to stop talking about Jesus here. I said, I know, <laughs> what happened? They're like, ah, you shared your story and all that and that's great, but these women are now telling, they're turning the whole place upside down over there. We told you we're going to have to let you go. And I was like, I, what, do you, what do you need me to do? They're like, here, sign this piece of paper that says you're going to stop doing it. And I was like, I, I can't do that. So I just kept sharing the gospel. And through a handful of events, I started to see that every single person that ever told me we're going to fire you within a month, and I'm not kidding, they would get fired themselves. I remember thinking, the last time someone threw at my job, I thought, <laughs> I liked you. They literally, I said, look, it's, it's really not my job that just got threatened, it was yours. 
my dad runs this place. And sure enough, Lisa Machado got fired, and she said, I want to have lunch with you. Are you okay? And I said, yeah, let's do it. She said, what is it you've been saying to all the therapists and all the kids? And I said, I said well, I told them about Jesus. And I shared the gospel with her, and her response was, what do I have to do to get saved? And I remember thinking, what a wonderful question. But here was the dilemma, and you probably find yourself in this too. If you think that your life is on the line, if you think that your livelihood is on the line, and speaking up about Jesus means that you're going to put yourself in jeopardy, you're at a fork in the road, friend. Will you speak up? I know Him. I love Him. I'm not ashamed to know Him. He was unashamed to know me. And so, hate me, mock me, fire me, whatever, threaten me, but I will not shut up about Jesus. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. And by saying it to Timothy, he's saying it to us. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about Jesus or me, His prisoner. Speak up. Speak up. Listen, it comes to this. Your Father in Heaven rules the universe and loves you. And He has put you in your spot right now. In this church, in your neighborhood, in your family, at your uh, team or at your school. Only you have been chosen to put, be put in that spot. And yes, that sense that it's risky is all a part of trusting Him, not just for salvation, but continuing to keep on trusting Him every single chapter of your life until He brings you home. And you don't know when you're going home. You might go home today. And it might be years from now, but you know that it's coming. Paul says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of Jesus. Do not be ashamed of me, but take your share of the Gospel and suffering for the Gospel. It's your share. It's not a time where you say, you know what, if I slip my ring off, I might have better connecting points to sell software or something. No, no, no. We proudly know Him. Exalt Him. Let it be said, in my early years, or my early weeks after getting saved, I remember carrying my living Bible with me to school. I don't know, it just <laughs> seemed bold to me at that time. I'll carry this Bible with me and my other books. It was just a step. I don't know what it looks like for you right now. But I know this. You've been entrusted with a treasure. Don't bury it. Don't hide it. Exalt Him. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Share in suffering for the Gospel by the power of God. Now listen to this. Paul's going to give you one of the, some of the most beautiful words in, in all of Scripture about what Jesus has done for you. So, so listen closely to the why. He says, uh, He saved us. He called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and His grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now just stop. 
and, and hear this. Timothy, he saved you. He saved us. And it wasn't because of our works. It wasn't because we dressed up nicely, we performed well, and he said, man, you're such a wonderful person, I think I'm going to save you. Being how noble and kind and patient and good you are. You've showed me that you're a good investment and so I'm going to save you. No, God saved you by His grace. Unmerited favor. It's, it's such a, a beautiful thing that he, not, he didn't love you in some version of yourself that was all better. He loves you as you are and He loves you so much He won't leave you as you are. He calls you into His grace, into His mercy, and that dawns on you, changing your affections. By His grace. And then He's called us to a holy calling. Now when you see the word holy calling, those two words together, I just want you to hear the words other calling. Holy means other. It's really a hard word to translate in English from the original language. It's the idea that everything else is alike, but this one's so bright, so pure, so good that it's unlike anything. It's other than anything else in this world. It's holy. You've been given a holy calling. Your calling is not just to have sophisticated titles and initials after your names. And your calling is not just to make money and have a nice house. That's a worldly calling. And it's a strong calling. It's an ambition that will drive you. This is different. This is a holy calling. It's one that is given by God. It's a pure, bright, beautiful calling to serve God, to suffer for the gospel. And it looks and feels higher, more permanent, more beautiful than anything in this world. It's a holy calling. And that's what he's asking Timothy to see and understand. You were saved by grace, but you didn't go home yet. I'm about to, but you haven't. You've got a holy calling to live out until the Lord calls you home. He gave us this holy calling, not because of our works, but by His grace that He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So let me, let me just help you with something here. The, the Lord made up His mind about you before there was an earth. Okay? He saw you from eternity past. He saw every single one of your victories and defeats. He saw your sins. He saw your backsliding. He saw your great moments. He saw it all from eternity past. And He chose you in Christ before the world began. Now that should give you a sense of awe and wonder and relief. I can't tell you how many friends I talk to that are early in their faith and they go, well, what if he changes his mind about me? What if, what if he sees me backsliding? What if he sees me wandering? What if he just goes, ah, the heck with you. You ought to know enough by now not to act like that. I'm done with you. Yeah, see, he's not going to find out something new about you and go, wow, if I'd known that. You're not on a perpetual first date with him. Meaning, you know, you don't want to eat spaghetti on a first date. You just make a terrible mess of yourself, right? So you've got to do something that's easier to keep yourself looking good 
No, 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 no. The Lord already knows the ragged, raw, real version of you. He called you from eternity past. Some of the verses that speak to this, just let me help you with this. It's so joy-giving. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, these words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him, before the foundation of the world. That's when He decided about you, about me. Another verse that I just love on this, Acts chapter 13, verse 48 Paul's been preaching the gospel and says when the gospel's been preached to the Gentiles, when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. What? Yeah, they were appointed to this. When? Before the foundation of the world, they were appointed to salvation by God. And in that moment of time, he came, he got them, he saved them. Now, everything in me says, praise you, Lord, thank you, Lord. And some of you are going, but, 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 but hang on, whoa, hang on, wait a minute. What about choice? And Are you saying that, like, I didn't make a choice? I know what you're thinking, friends. I know why that comes to you. You're thinking from someone who's standing down on terra firma, and you're trying to understand right-left choices and how they interact with an eternal God who lives lives outside of time and space. He's infinite in wisdom and power, and He is sovereign, and you are making choices, free, real choices. And somehow God, in His complexity and wisdom, can allow a totally free being to make choices and Him still be sovereign. And somewhere in there, your brain is going to start to smoke. And it's going to smoke, it's going to pour right out of your ears. And you go, "Ah, I just don't understand. (laughs) Scripture teaches both. People are making choices. They are fully accountable for those choices. They are making free choices. And God is still sovereign over the universe completely, without question. You can't get around it that Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed, that you, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. This happened in eternity past. Paul was telling Timothy that even in this. He chose us before the ages began. I've been perplexed over this many times. I thought, Lord, I just don't need to understand how you could do that. How is it? And, And really, every analogy tends to break down at some point. I know that Scripture teaches this. I know that from where I sit with my limited view from 19, June of 1969 all the way to this moment, my perspective is very limited on the, the wisdom and power of God and the complexity of how He rules the universe. But I'm sure of this. He is sovereign over life and death and over salvation. And we are making choices that He somehow shepherds us through the complexity of it all into His grace. He says also to Timothy, 
Not only he chose us before the ages began, but verse 10, which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought, to li- brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Let's stop for just a moment because there's something really beautiful here. That interaction, that transaction, if you will, that happened in eternity past, it's been brought into history when Jesus came and lived 2,000 years ago. He brought that transaction from eternity past that included you, He brought it into the historical world that is touchable, recordable. He brought it to life. Jesus lived in perfect submission to His Father's will. He met all of the requirements of Old Testament law. He met them perfectly. He laid down His life as if He was a guilty criminal, as if He had lived our rebellious, selfish lives. He laid down that perfect record. He laid it down for us, His life, as if He was guilty. He took our place. He took our punishment. And we took His. As you put your faith in Him, no matter who you are, no matter what your sin record is, as you trust in Him for salvation, meaning to make you right with the God who you know is there, whose law is written on your heart and you can't escape it, as you trust in Him, you get Christ's record and He took yours onto the cross. And it says something very powerful and very interesting that... Christ had not only appeared, but He also abolished death. Now, if you write in your Bible, and I encourage you to do that, or if you make notes, make note of this. Abolished death literally says that He rendered it inoperable. He just broke it to pieces. You know, it's as, it's as if death that is personified sometimes in Scripture. You look and you see in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14 that death will someday be thrown into the lake of fire. Kind of want to see that, right? It's as if death, the day that Jesus was on the cross, was watching like a phantom shadow. It was watching greedily. And as the sky went dark from noon to three, death was watching And death was looking and saying something like this, I've got you now. Finally, I've got you. And as Jesus was hanging on the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That He also said these words, It is finished. And into your hands I commit my spirit. And death said, I'm going to swallow you whole. And it laid hold of our Savior. Death got its arms around Him, dragged Him down into death. And then as it took the life of Jesus, it said, I'm done with you now. And Jesus said, but I'm not done with you. I'm not finished with you. Listen to these words. From Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. This is from Eugene Peterson's The Message. I like how he says this. He says, Since the children are made of flesh and blood, it is logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by His death. 
Now listen to this. By embracing death, taking it into himself, he destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life scared to death. Scared to death of death. You know what he's saying? Death laid hold of Jesus, and Jesus, when, it, when death said, I've got you, Jesus said, yes, you do. And I've got you. And I'm going to drag you down into Hades and hell. Someday I will chunk you into it. And when I'm done, I will look at you, death, and I will say, I'm done with you forever. And he renders it inoperable. Friends, feel the joy of that. Feel that someday. See, death right now for us who are believers, we don't have to be afraid at all. Jesus said, "If you, those who, uh, who believe in me will never see death. I remember Matt Chandler saying, I may be wrong about this, but I think that could mean this, that when a Christian dies, they won't even know it happened. They're going to slip right by that moment of a moment of